Overthinking It Podcast, episode 29. Featuring Matthew Rather, Matthew Blinky, <laughs> Peter Fenzel, David Schechner, Mark Lee, and Jordan Stokes as Jordan Stokes. I was really hoping to get and introducing Jordan Stokes as Einstein the dog. <laughs> <laughs> All right, why everyone. Did you, why did you read Mark Lee's name as if he's the romantic, like, love interest? Well, I was listening to the music. And that's just how it that's just how it sounded. Was it oddly slow? Because in order to play the sound through the speakers, I was listening to myself in the headphones as well, and that is just the weirdest thing because uh, I'm being processed to make my voice attractive, so there's a delay. Anyway, listeners, welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject to the, the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it doesn't deserve. Call us if you hear anything that you want to comment on, because you know what? It's not just our show it's your show as well uh and the number to call us leave a voicemail with your name and where you're calling from is 20 eat log 01 that's 203-285-6401 and uh email is down on the site so don't oh matt keeps bugging me about putting an announcement so don't email anything to us fortunately i think your email will bounce and you'll realize that you haven't sent an email, but don't email anything right now. Call us, 203-285-6401. Those are the people. It's a big panel tonight, so let's do it quickly. Let me just introduce everyone. Belinky, hey. Hey, what's going on? Oh, uh, you know, same old, same old. <laughs> All right, good, good conversation. Fenzel? Hey. Hey, on the Skype. Yeah, I'm back on Skype. I've joined the information superhighway. I've merged from the slow-moving local street of my cellular telephone back to the quick and prompt travel of my fancy pants headset. Well, that is, that is uh, I think the listeners will thank you because you are much clearer. Oh, I'm sure they will. They'll be afraid to talk to me directly because I'm such a big celebrity on the internet these days. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, We're all new media. We're all <laughs> new media superstars. And then in alphabetical order, I'm sorry, Mark, I got it, I got it wrong when I was reading the names. Uh, you're so next. Pissed. I know, I know. But so you know pissed. what? I got to say Mark Lee. Mr. Mark Lee. How are you? Uh, I guess that was kind of nice. Yeah, thanks for letting me host the podcast last week, too. Oh, yeah. Um, no. Oh, sorry. I should say I was flying on a plane and I listened to you guys and I thought you were great. I should uh, I should, you know, take take a week off more often. I you know, I think the show is only better for uh, the lack of me. Yeah, I- I'm drunk with power as well, too. So I'm <laughs> <laughs> plotting against you. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. You probably don't have to plot. Hey, everyone, did you like Mark? Let us know at 20 eat log zero one. That's 203-285-6401. This is what I'm, I'm really hoping for, which is some kind of intra-blog rivalry, you know, where we can get. Uh, David Schechner is on the horn. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm, I'm trying to frantically calculate things about basic Newtonian mechanics. I will let you, you know. get back to that and introduce... No, no, it's, it's cool. It's cool. I'm trying to get it to spell out things. It's, anyway, I don't need to on. interrupt you. Uh, 
and Jordan. Oh yeah, no, because I'm a, because I'm a nerd. Let me tell a little story. My dad used to on my lunch uh, bag he would write Matt, uh, but he would derive it. So he uh, it ended up being mass. Uh, acceleration times squared. So he would start with oh, some wow. very long, complicated, you know, expression in physics that probably didn't mean anything. Um, but you know, well, I see, mean, for, force times time is just the uh, is just the power, right? So it actually power times time is your name, right? If it, eventually, and then it would become like dp dt <laughs> times squared, and then that would be force times squared, and that would be matt. And you know, and I, I should, didn't. I should say to all the listeners, Matt eventually grew up to kill his father with a slide rule. No. What my dad has a my dad has a doctorate in operations research. Damn. And that that presumably includes math at some point. It, it includes a great deal of math. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, though he was though he was in in business professionally. Uh, no, the dude's uh, and I think he loves it. Loves the loves the math. Loves you need to the- go back in time and make your dad not a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> He's also a regular listener to the podcast. So hey, dad, <laughs> love you. <laughs> maybe, maybe he used to be a slacker, and you went back in time and made him a huge nerd, and now he's tremendously professionally successful and happy. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Uh, and Jordan Stokes, sorry, I had to tell that story before I got to you. That's okay. That was more important. Yeah, well, no, I agree. Aww. All right, well, we're wrapping up uh, Back to the Future Week. Are there any announcements? Oh, yeah, call us if you have to say anything. Thanks for the comments on iTunes. Keep those coming. We really appreciate it on the listeners. We all, the uh, the people on the podcast, I know I don't just speak for myself, probably on a, pr- on a pretty much a daily basis, go on iTunes and read your very nice comments about uh, about the show. We're glad you like it. Is that is that wrong? Am I the only one who does that obsessively, like seven or eight times a day? What's iTunes? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I was so distracted. I was actually doing it as you said that. So I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and if you really want to help us out, you can uh, go on overthinkingit.com and click the link for the survey. Take about five minutes. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself so that we can find sponsors who will have us market. Uh, their products at you so that we can ruin the podcast with commercial messages. Anyway, into what we're doing. This was the end of Back to the Future Week on uh, on Overthinking It. And it was, um, it was quite an epic week. For whatever reason, this theme week brought out, I think, the best in everyone. Uh, Shana writing on The Paradox of Marty's Headless Brother. Uh, Belinky on Marty McFly's Grim Future. Mark on uh, Marty McFly did not invent rock and roll, which was an incredible, uh, just an incredible. Yeah, I, actually, can we can we get a round of applause from Mark's like actual guitar performance on that post, which was righteous? Yeah, it was. Yeah, Mark, that was you. You that was, were you were shredding like a pro. That my coleslaw was just flying out of my computer I was, screen. I was, you know, I was really I was channeling Nigel Tufnell. If you remember his epic guitar solo from Final Tap, that's really where I'm from. That was great. Yeah, it was. It was excellent. I'm trying to get a. I'm trying to get a a little bit of it to play. Are you hearing it? No, apparently I can't get it. I was trying to get it to play. I I, I hear it on continuous loop now. Anyway, that's the way uh, my. (laughs) uh, You built a time machine out of a DeLorean. The history of the DeLorean, a a much needed gap uh, that you filled in there. 
a much-needed filling in of a gap from Stokes. Thank you. Uh, from our guest writer, Matthew Silver, uh, some time travel, some ideas of time travel, conceptual ideals of time travel. Uh, from Dave Schechner, a master's thesis on... <laughs> I, it's, it's like a high school geometry paper, but if you gussy it up with enough fancy-schmancy terms. <laughs> <laughs> and with graphics, with really... I mean, obviously you had spent hours and hours working on it. And then uh, the... Um, the top ten miraculous fictional head injuries from movies, television, comics, and video games uh, from Fenzel. And then finally, today, a late entry, uh, an article about Huey Lewis and the News from uh, Ryan Sheely, who is not on the call tonight. But that was – so that was Back to the Future week, and we got – you know, tens of thousands of hits and we have page views and lots of comments. The discussion was really great. It was wonderful to see everyone, uh, you know, joining in on the site. Um, the, any, any thoughts wrapping up back to the future week? Cause that's what we're, that's where we're going to spend our time on tonight. I have a message for all the commenters who said something along the lines of why are you guys doing this? And why can't you just enjoy the movie? I love like that. Hurts? I love that. <laughs> So in the in the like one one thousandth percent of a chance that you're listening to the podcast and have made it to this point, I say look again at the title of our website. <laughs> yeah, perhaps you, you want to go to knee jerk reactioning it, <laughs> right? Um, or like yeah, just relaxing and enjoying your life like a normal person dot com or dot dot <laughs> org. That'd be nonprofit. Be dot org because it'd be all NGO yeah, and right. bullshit trying to stop yeah, the, Darfur. The, the knee jerk reaction thing is a, is a gov extension, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, technically, isn't any organization that's not part of the government an NGO? Like, aren't we an NGO? I guess so. Hmm. It depends whether you think we're actually an organization or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Wikipedia NGO right now, but I don't know. I'll come back later in the podcast with the surprise answer to Matt's question. So I think what we should do is really just get bogged down and talk for like an hour and a half about just paradoxes of time travel in minute detail. Wouldn't that be great a great Scott. idea? Great Scott! No. If it turns out to not be a great idea, we can just send somebody back and have them correct it. Uh, <laughs> Hey, this is something, though, that I wanted to say to Dave. Dave, wouldn't your – if you traveled through time, wouldn't your momentum in the other dimensions be conserved? Yeah, actually, and this came out – I wrote – I wrote about this in the response to... Oh, this was, in the, this was in the comments? Maybe I haven't seen that comment. Yeah, a couple of the guys... And I, I actually sat down and did the, the calculation for, for a couple of different ways that you could, you could think about it. Yeah, I mean, I, my guess is... I mean, it depends on, obviously, how the time travel device is supposed to work. But in the purest sense, yeah, you, you'd have whatever momentum you left with uh, when you, like, jump back into the new time frame that you're in. Uh-huh. So, I, you know, my, my whole post was, like, assuming that... Uh, during that, you know, we're sort of calculating the displacement vector. Where does the Earth go during that minute that Einstein isn't on it? And then when he pops back again, like, how far would he have to jump? But, like, those those same forces that are causing the Earth to revolve and rotate would have been affecting Einstein at the moment they jumped off as well, which is what one of the reviewers, or one of the, you know, the, the guys commenting at the bottom there right. uh, said, which is very astute. But so, so I guess you could kind of picture it a, a couple of ways. Like, one, the the first reaction that I had was, like, 
oh, well, Einstein would be, you know, about 1,800 kilometers behind the path of the Earth in, like, the vacuum of space if he just, like, popped back on the same point that he left a minute earlier. Right. Uh, and I guess you'd modify it by saying, like, yeah, he'd, he'd still be in the vacuum of space, but he would not be at rest. He'd be traveling at roughly the velocities that he left at. Okay, so that so, because, the, because the, the time it actually takes to time travel is infinitesimally small, whatever, infinitesimally small, whatever... Uh, velocity you'd been traveling it is at. Reportedly, infinitesimally small. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, infinitesimally small. To, so he would he would not really have any time to let his momentum do any work as far as like making him travel any there distance needs to be through time space. There to be work. This that's is in the no. yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's pretty much it, right? <laughs> like, yeah, you can't change your position just with velocity. Like what? That's crazy. That's crazy talk. <laughs> the, the units don't work than... out. What? Like, if we do some unit analysis on this, we'd find out that you've got an extra kilogram in the numerator. <laughs> I got an extra kilogram in my numerator right here. Yeah, actually, you're so, going to want to get that checked out. Um, oh, crap. So, so there needs to be time in order for there to be work, and yet there are whole days that go by when I don't do shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the motivational poster right there. Decorate your cubicle with that. <laughs> this was. I've we should. We should. <laughs> we should explain for the listeners that who don't necessarily read the site that this was. Uh, we were. Uh, Dave had. I, I had asked Dave a question, and he wrote this this master's thesis as an answer to it. Uh, that is, you know, if you are traveling through time, wouldn't the Earth move on? I mean, you're not necessarily traveling through space. So, assuming that you stay exactly in the space where you are, uh, and you just move through time in an instant, even if your momentum is conserved, wouldn't you be, you know, in the middle of a mountain or in the vacuum of space or, you know, somewhere else in the expanding universe, depending on how far you've traveled? Yeah. And I should say that, like, uh, I, I didn't even consider, you know, the expansion of the universe, the rotation of our galaxy, which are, which are major forces, largely because, um, you know, of relativity, um, but also because it's just sort of hard to to really know at the point that he left, like, what was the direction that he was, what, that, that our solar system was expanding at relative to the direction he was facing driving in the car and all. Um, yeah. So, like, adding up the vectors became hard, but, but relativity itself is just, is sort of a colossal thing to try and, like, account for in this whole thing. Actually, so it's, an, it's, interesting, it's, an interesting, interesting question is, if you travel through time, would uh-huh. you then uh, experience relativistic effects of your, you know, personal timeline slowing down in relationship to other timelines around you? Or, like, does your uh, mass get bigger and crap like that? Yeah, yeah, oh, that, that's absolutely right. So, so Einstein, the, not the dog, but the German. Um, <laughs> or the, yeah, thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> <laughs> so I, Einstein, Einstein wrote either four or five papers while he was a patent clerk, um, and these are the papers that, you know, he both got his PhD for by correspondence and also got a Nobel Prize for a little while later. So, <laughs> Again, by correspondence. By correspondence, yeah. It's, it's a letter from, a letter from uh, Sweden. Um, so, uh, yeah, so he kind of raised the bar for all of us. Oh, Sweden was the one he got back for. He didn't get the Peace Prize, though. That'd be from oh, Norway. That'd be from Norway, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it okay. Sweden or Switzerland? Uh, that's Sweden. Europe. Einstein was in Switzerland, but the Nobel Prizes were in Sweden, but they were really in Norway, except for the Peace Prize, right? Well, okay, so the Nobel Prize leaves the Earth at Sweden, <laughs> but can, can for rotation. <laughs> so, so he, just, he, write, he, writes, he, writes, 
he writes two papers uh, on relativity, um, one which is typically called the special theory, which is the first one to come out. And that accounts for things that are traveling at speeds that are very close to the speed of light, uh, but are not accelerating. That is, the, the frame of reference that's around them isn't changing its speed, it's just at incredibly fast speeds. And then the second follow-up paper is called um, the general theory, and that, that accounts for things that actually are accelerating. And so, like, the answer to Jordan's question I can answer, because while I don't understand crap about the general theory, uh, his question is, is effectively about the special theory, um, which says that, yeah, if you're, if you're traveling at speeds that are close to the speed of light, and nothing that has mass can actually travel at the speed of light, and pretty much nothing at all can travel faster than it. That's, that's the proposal. Um, is that all sorts of wonky things happen to your personal time frame and to your dimensions and mass. So your, your mass increases uh, relative to the speed that you're traveling at, which is why nothing that has mass can travel at the speed of light. As you go faster, uh, you get heavier, and you require more energy to push that weight at such a speed, and so you eventually just everything goes to infinity. This is actually why people gain weight over the holidays, because they do a lot more traveling. Yeah, that's absolutely right. <laughs> Man, all of your moms must be traveling very fast. Oh, burn oh. again. So many burns. Your, your, your mom, for what it's worth, your moms are quite fast. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this, Dave. Let me ask this. I was thinking about this the other day when I was in the shower. Um, okay. That was necessary information. But I was thinking Speaking about this. Speaking of fast. <laughs> so if you were in a time machine and say that you managed to arrange for the DeLorean to appear in the same spot in the same parking lot, like following the Earth along its orbit, right? Yeah, but yeah. it has only experienced from its frame of reference, you know, an instantaneous moment, whereas the Earth has experienced a full minute. Um, would you, it would, Presumably it would have to pass through all of the intervening points, and there would just be a difference in the frames of reference, but if anything had sort of um, gotten in its way or, or made contact with it during its time travel, wouldn't it like, wouldn't the, the, the force and the impact of that like explosion due to the fact that it was traveling like a, a, an incredible distance in an infinitesimal period of time, meaning that it has like near infinite momentum and near infinite speed just like blow up the universe? Wow. Like if someone um. built a mailbox, <laughs> where Marty, like if Marty McFly's DeLorean leaves the parking lot and then someone puts a rock where the DeLorean was, is the DeLorean going to hit it while it's time traveling and destroy the universe? Yeah, actually, it's it's a great question, and the answer I think is actually pretty much no. Um, and again, this this comes back to this comes back to Jordan's question. So, like, okay, so your mass increases, if only um, evidenced by the fact that the movie continues beyond that point. Well, we're assuming all the right. flux is capacited. We're, we're assuming that the flux that exists in the environment is being capacited. So make How sure capacited you is your, your flux? Oh, I'm thoroughly capacitor right now. Jump and jiggle. Yeah, I, I, got, I got kind of burned in the housing market, so it's probably over-leveraged in the capacity. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, you know, so the thing is, like, uh, your mass increases as your speed increases relative to the speed of light. Um, and your length will uh, decrease. So, like, in the direction that you're traveling, your length will increase. Um, but as viewed from any other dimension, it will decrease. And this is also proportional to the speed of light. So, like, y- what's kind of funny is, um, like, Star Wars kind of gets it... Is it Star- oh, no, it's Star Trek actually gets it right. I- you never see something jump to light speed in Star Wars from outside the ship, do you? Um, any, they don't any, call I, it light speed. They call it hyperspeed, don't they? They call it hyperspeed. Yeah, yeah. And it's no, in, I, you do see it like in the Millennium Falcon when they leave Tatooine for the first time. Don't you see all the stars go streaky uh, you, you around do, but, the but, ship? But you see it. You see it from inside the cockpit. I, mean, right. I think 
maybe I'm thinking of um, a Star Trek where you frequently see the ship jump to like warp speed. And they do a thing, yeah, they do a thing in the next generation where the ship kind of elongates. Yeah, exactly. It it sort of stretches out uh, and then it's gone. And and that's obviously you wouldn't see the process of it stretching out because it'd be super, super fast. Right. But my sense is that's actually what would happen is that you'd become infinitely long in the dimension that you're traveling at, and you become infinitely (laughs) tiny in the dimensions that you're not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. We, we now pause the podcast for five minutes of juvenile giggling. How many degrees do we all have? We have like 18 degrees among all of us. Most of them from Yale. I'll point out. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, infinitely long. You guys to get, get off the horses and into the horse poop because that's, that's where the world is. You know, it'd be great is if we traveled back in time and met a Homo erectus. Well, hold on. This is uh, erectus. Here's yeah, my question. Is right, the right. fact that we have not yet met people time traveling from the future proof that time travel is never invented? Oh, that's, that's, the, bon- that's the big question. No, it's just, I, it's just I proof disagree. that people like us will never be able to use it. Like, no, here's it my theory. We invented it available to like, the government for certain circumstances, but we won't be able to take vacations to the past. Yeah, but aren't you saying, I mean, don't you think that it's at, like all technologies, at some point it becomes cheaper and uh, easier to reproduce and more available so that everyone can, you know, jump around through time, like Doc in the flying train? <laughs> okay, here's my, here's my theory. I, got, I thought this through pretty well, and I think I've got it nailed down. So... Okay. I, look at time, I look at time travel. You are in the right place if you think you have your theory nailed down. So I, I, I look at time travel from the point of view where there are essentially multiple timelines that branch out. Right. So we right now are in that original timeline um, that has progressed linearly until the point where time travel is invented. So at the point that time travel is invented... Someone can go back in time, and then if they come back to, say, any point, then they're splitting off into an alternate timeline. Essentially, we're creating an alternate universe, which we don't belong to yet. We're not in that ballpark. You following me? Okay. I'll take that as a yes. For example, right now, I'm going to tell uh, future time travelers that if you want to uh, prove yourself and reveal yourself and discover your time travel... Um, come to uh, 460 West 57th Street, New York, New York, apartment 5N, um, the evening of Sunday, January 18th at 10 o'clock. Buzz my apartment, and uh, I'll come down and let you in, and you'll hear the interruption in the podcast. Okay, just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Marcus had that doorbell for years. Here's what happens in my time. Hear me out. In in a hundred years from now, when someone invents time travel, they're gonna hear listen to this podcast and podcast will still be <laughs> no, <they won't. laughs> There's your first problem. But when they go back in time to come bust my apartment, that's in an alternate universe, not the one that we are currently existing in now. That's my theory. You know, MIT actually held a uh, a conference for with, with exactly this principle. Yes, yeah, that that's was what like, I was thinking. Yeah, and I was I was kind of pre- like pitching maybe we should do the same thing uh, because maybe like the reason why we haven't seen time travelers is because we're in, or like that people don't claim to have seen time travelers is that uh, no one is cool enough that time travelers would want to go back and hang out with them, especially <laughs> MIT. 
one of? Yeah, exactly. So, so MIT basically said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to hold the Time Travelers Conference. We're going to write down the location and time of that conference in as like indelible a fashion as possible, something that will survive, you know, thousands of years. Like, you, you mean know, a podcast? They had, they, yeah, like, like, duh. They, they burned that to a thumbstick. Um, <laughs> no, they actually, I, think, I think they actually had, like, um, what do you call it? Call a person that carves tomb, uh, gravestones. Like a gravestone. An engraver, I guess. They had somebody a like a stonemason. Uh, I don't know. Petey, hook me up here. What? I mean, there might be an undertaker, presumably. Yeah. I thought the undertaker digs the graves. I never saw Nate Fisher do any carving over the course of six feet under. <laughs> well, the point the point is like they had somebody actually carve the date and time into into stone, like literally into stone, and uh, again, into, like, like Mount this- Rushmore or something. Yeah, we weren't using, you know, uh, Jefferson, so they just they threw him on there. And, uh, and yeah, and, like, presumably, you know, then, like, thousands of years from now, someone will see that date and time and be like, well, fuck, if I wanted to travel back in time to hang out with a bunch of MIT students, then that would be the place and time to go to, apparently. Yeah, see, that, that's, the, that's the fatal flaw in the plan, which is that, like, can you imagine any less fun party to go to? I, I've been to that party, and, and no, I can't. <laughs> um, my, my problem with Mug's theory, although it's very interesting in a lot of ways, is that it assumes that we are in like the, the prime, original, unpolluted timeline. Right. And if you think about it kind of probabilistically, you know, out of all of the timelines that could get created every time someone goes back in time, we happen to be in like the first, original, most important one. And really, this is the same kind of thought process that posits, uh, you know, the the Orient as being east of Europe somehow, just because Europe is on the center of the map. Right? Hey, I'm offended. <laughs> all the countries in all the world, she had to walk into mine. That's a strong anthropic principle, as, as indicated by Humphrey Bogart. Oh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a declaration. It's like, it's, you know, she did have to walk into mine, you know, don't you know? <laughs> because if she hadn't, then no one right. would have observed it. No one would have seen Casablanca, and it didn't exist. So because well, right, it exists, therefore Ingrid Bergman went into Rick's gin joint. Yeah, right. and that's well, why the original title was Everybody Comes to Rick's. Or what was it? Everybody Eats at Rick's? Oh really? Everybody, that was that was the original title of it, and it's and, and it's not just it's it's a statement of fact. Yeah, it's it's an imperative <laughs> because yeah. everyone who does it doesn't exist within the reality that the movie is constructed. Of Casablanca, right. yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's the thing. I, I can't I can't bear people who are like that movie is so unrealistic. It's uh, it's plot is so far fetched. People have stuff in their mouth. Maybe they're just eating. <laughs> Maybe they. Yeah, no. I love eating. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I don't like talking while eating. Power, so wait, uh, Matt, let me ask you this, connected to that. Are you, do you have a, a, a thinking, a feeling about internal plausibility, the plausibility of what happens inside of a movie if you follow the movie's own rules versus external plausibility, whether we think that the things that are in the movie could happen based on what we know about how things work? Right. I think, I think what you're, you're pointing at, and you're right, is that my... Um, my thoughts are very sort of new critical about it in that I think that like with, uh, with say a, uh, an action comedy for an adventure comedy franchise, time travel franchise, we should kind of draw a box around it and consider it, consider it in itself rather than consider it in a, in a way uh, where it's like responsible to 
physical or social laws outside of the story. So I, I do think that we ought to consider we ought to consider the internal consistency of the work of art rather than the uh, what rather than it, whether it's strictly speaking probable in our in our universe. Right. Like, so in Starship Troopers, we're not like, oh man, there's no way that there could be a bug that that's, that that's, that that's big, that that is that big because of issues. But we will say, oh, why are all those soldiers getting around the bug in a circle and shooting inward? That's really dangerous. And why would soldiers do that? Um, because they could hit each other. So (laughs) those are two different kinds of plausibility, right? Um, There's Well, I guess that's a third kind of plausibility, which is the kind of plausibility that persists across um, the suspension of disbelief. Certain things are so stupid that when you encounter them in a fictional world, you're not willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. We have to, you know, we have to talk about suspension. The the Jar Jar principle. Yes, exactly. Jar Jar isn't real, but he's also really, really dumb. But anyway, Matt, what were you saying? We have to talk a little bit about suspension of disbelief um uh because it it was being misused a little bit in the comments on the blog and it was it was being used in like yeah i don't really buy that plot point but you know what suspension of disbelief it was it was used in in a way that meant essentially that as a viewer of a movie you just swallow all your objections because you don't have the right to make them because it's after all it's a movie and why are you guys you know writing a website about it? But it's it? like a social contract that when you buy a movie ticket you agree to not question the 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 logic of what you were seeing. Right, absolutely. Whereas it's in fact it's it, it it's like a normative characterization of people's relationships to art. Uh, that was kind of posited by Samuel Taylor Coleridge in 1817. And he actually, he doesn't talk about just suspension of disbelief, he talks about a willing suspension of disbelief. And, and in a way, it's like bringing up a social contract is not the worst thing in the world because you, uh, you agree to do certain things and the work of art agrees to do certain things. Um, Right. That is, I agree that I'm going to suspend my disbelief and I'm really going to go with you for the ride. uh, But the work of art agrees I'm going to give you a ride that is palatable in some way or that does not at least, you know, stick its tongue out at the fact that you are. If it if it establishes working rules uh, early on, it's going to abide by those rules. Yeah. Or if it's Charlie Kaufman. Or if it's a script by Charlie Kaufman, right, it's going to at least break the rules in a way that is artistically productive. But, but for Charlie Kaufman, like, he establishes that one of the rules is that he's only going to abide by the early incarnations of the rules within a certain level of fuzziness, right? Say that again. Maybe a better, he's, 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 oh, yeah, go ahead, Jordan. I say maybe a better example is um, someone like Charlie Chaplin, where you kind of expect him to do things that are utterly ludicrous, but, you know, it's for comic effect, you know. I mean, I think suspension right. of disbelief is less something that you have to bring to a movie as an audience member and more something that the movie has to establish with you and has to bring to you. Suspension of disbelief in creating it is the responsibility of the storyteller. And I think that it's a quality of storytelling. Um, and it's, it's something that you can write a story in a certain way that your audience is going to be more willing to listen to you. And right. it's not like something like, oh, this is just poetic license. This person gets to say whatever bullshit they want. I think that kind of thinking comes from reading a lot of books in school that you don't like. And you forget that you're supposed to like books, and you're supposed to like movies, and the primary reason why people make them is so that you can like them. Yeah. And 
Thus, most of the time, these are things that we watch voluntarily and yeah. not involuntarily. And therefore, like, if it, suspension of disbelief is common to all of them, then maybe that's something that, like, we like as opposed to something that we sort of, like, begrudge. Well, it's, you know? I mean, the point is, I mean, the point is, is that it's a, there's kind of an a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours relationship between the reader or viewer or auditor and the work of art, you know? Is I mean, that, I disagree with that. I think that this is all the work of art scratching your back. I think that the suspension of disbelief is something that the work of art likes to create. And I mean, yeah, you can you can just anything you're watching you can be like, this sucks. I refuse to watch it. And walk are you out, saying that? Like, are you saying that Pete? Are you saying it's something that the work kind of earns from you? Um, well, that's. I think there are a lot of methods. There's a lot of ways to get from point A to point B. I think earning is one of the things because if it lapses in its responsibility to communicate with your expectations in certain ways, then it can lose the suspension of disbelief. But also I think that when you're looking at the way that the stories are told, uh, they can do certain things in the way that re- they relate to you discursively that, that send out the signal that say, okay, this is something where you're going to want to suspend your disbelief. Um, not that you have to show up with it in a suitcase, uh, but just that the way – I mean, words in, in general, are sus- there's a lot of suspension of disbelief involved in because your mind is constantly making all these connections and, and, and uh, associations between you know, the things that the, – the letters and the words and the ideas. And I mean, a book in itself doesn't represent experiences at all. It's just a piece of wood. But you have to make leaps when you're reading the book, cognitive leaps between – the letters and the symbols and your understanding of symbol. Um, and these are things that are in the book, you know, they're, they're, they're elements of storytelling and they become extrapolated and emergent as the complexity of the work increases. Um, or also it can have a really cool score. And if there's really good music, then that'll really do it for you. Like in Superman with uh, Christopher Reeve. Yeah, sometimes partial nudity will also help. Brief nudity is great. 90 Brief, seconds. And, and, and adult themes movie. and situations. I'm telling you, you make an R-rated movie about a cop on the wrong side of the law, there better be boobs in it somewhere, or some 15-year-old kid is... Good morning. It's going to be on the weekend. Sit down and read a book or watch a movie or something. Wait, Matt, you were blocked. Start it, Matt, start again at the beginning of that because you were blocked. I'm saying that, you know, Pete... He was at first saying that, like, you know, the suspension of disbelief comes entirely from the work, that, like, you don't have to come into it with anything. But, I mean, at the same time, like, you wouldn't be sitting down to read a book if you weren't willing to accept the conditions under which the book exists. Same thing with the film, that if you're not willing to, to go into a dark room and look at a wall on which images are displayed at 24 frames a second and accept that it's, it's a representation of real events, um, mm. then... And like you wouldn't be there in the first place. So there is a certain base level of suspension yeah. of disbelief that, that you're these, willing to participate in the medium, you know. And if you were willing these, to, these if are, you were are, willing to shout out ludicrous suggestions at the top of your lungs, you wouldn't be going to an improv show. Kapow! <laughs> at a Starbucks <laughs> in Siberia. Crazy doctor. Oh man! Door to door salesman. Like I'm punching you in the face. <laughs> furthermore, furthermore, I will say that I have uh, watched movies with people currently on this podcast at times when, for whatever reason, you know, they had a little bit too much to drink, they just weren't feeling it, they had not brought their basic level of special disbelief to the party with them, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that like, take a take a long hard look back at your life, Pete. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> 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 
when I was drunk. You know, what, what, was, what was kind of amazing, though, is I know what you're talking about, Jordan. That wasn't for the movie. Pete refused to believe that the events going on around him were real. <laughs> His, like, suspension of disbelief for actual reality had been broken. I think what I would I would do is, is I did overstate what I was saying, but I would take some of the loose end there, and I would tie it into sort of the diachronic nature of art, and that a lot of the expectations are created by your experiences with previous pieces of art. Um, and so the pieces of art don't necessarily exist uh, in your context independently of past ones that they've been influenced by. Um, so, you know, you come to the table, at some point you saw a movie for the first time, and you did it for a particular reason, but your experience with that movie is going to inform your experience with your next movie, and so on and so forth. But is it the kind of thing that you make a deliberate decision? Okay, when I go to the movie this time, I'm going to be an asshole. And maybe I do that. Maybe I've done that sometimes. Maybe we were watching some sort of stupid Hugh Grant movie, and I was like, this is horseshit. Or maybe we were watching Scrubs, and I just didn't want to watch it. In fact, that's probably what it was. You know, whenever I go to a... uh, Whenever I, I go to it was you go you go you go you who had done this oh, I was just okay. saying that like that like you and I have like rolled our eyes at each other as somebody else in the room was like now wait a minute and I was like I, and yeah, I wanted yeah. and I and I want to say that I always go to an improv comedy show with the express purpose of being an asshole. Well, that's probably for the best. Will you perform in them, right? No. I do. I've been known. I've been known to. And actually, I only mean as a performer. I, I go with the express purpose of being an asshole to the audience. Mm. So there are By two the- kinds. There are two kinds of. What do you think of this? There are two kinds of time travel uh, in modern stories. There's the Terminator model, which is ultimately Greek. And there's the Star Trek The Next Generation Yesterday Enterprise, Yesterday's Enterprise model, which is ultimately <laughs> an enlightenment view of, uh, of people and what they're like. And that Back to the Future straddles the two uh, modes. Can you clarify what you mean by Greek and enlightenment? Yeah, it's, it comes down to wh- whether you have a choice or not. Whether, oh, whether oh. in fact, whether time travel just ends up fulfilling what was going to happen all along. And one of the best statements of this, actually, though it's a terrible movie, is in Terminator 3, where he's like, we weren't meant to avoid Judgment Day, we were just meant to survive it. That is, they, they know, they think they know the future, and so they take all these actions, and these actions end up, just end up fulfilling what they knew to be the future all along. Or mm. the other one is where, uh, you know, where the picture is taken at the very end of the first Terminator movie that becomes the picture that John Connor sends back, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so no, that's, I know. That's, that's, that's the example of all of uh, Terminator 1, the Terminator goes back in time to kill Sarah Connor and prevent John Connor from being bored. As, as a result, the humans and that John Connor's father... And that results in John Connor being born in the first place. If the Terminator not Connor, he never would have been born. So I actually uh, saw Kung Fu Panda today. And that actually relates because uh, like one of the old wise stories says that when you are in like, like the times you meet your destiny when you are rushing along the path. Hey, Matt, you're way, you are way, uh, you're way breaking up. So try try what you were saying. Yeah, try what you were saying one more time, and then we may hang up on you and ostracize you and call you back. Yeah, Matt, you're way you're way off the reservation. So we're gonna try and reass- we're yeah, gonna no, try no, he's, and he's got crazy flow, everybody. Let's, let's, let's cut a demo. <laughs> 
<laughs> Are you back, Matt? No, I don't know. Skip, 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 skip. Um, well, we'll we'll get back we'll get back on the horn with Matt. He was making the point that the um, that it's the fact that the Terminator is sent back to kill John Connor's father that results in John Connor having a father in the first place. Right. Right. Well, I, so, yeah, I thought so about this a lot. I've thought about this difference a lot, and I think that what it boils down to is the moral outlook of the – I mean the moral outlook of the people writing the piece and putting the piece together. Right. And if you tend to believe that there's a way that the world ought to be and that there's sort of a benevolent presence in the world, yeah. that sort of – and if you see time travel, travel stories as fundamentally epic in a way that they reaffirm, reaffirm and recreate and make a case for – the civilization that they represent, um, and the two foremost uh, time travel epics that I would consider in this in this framework would be probably Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where they they say like, oh wow, the future is going to be totally awesome and it's going to be really great, and the way that the reason it's going to be really great is because these people are really great, and you know then it, it creates this epic that justifies the society and yeah. everything. Whenever Bill and Ted want to go back in time and do something, they're always doing it for the right reasons. The protagonists are always doing the right thing because they're the heroes, and that's the way that people work. You know, and back to yes. like, anyone, uh, can anyone understand at this point? Do I sound better or still crappy? You sound a little better. You sound a little better when you slow it down a little bit, I think. I don't know whether this, you, you I don't blow know, out I don't the know. microphone. I was, I was fine at the beginning of the podcast. I don't know what changed. Well, if you slow, it's like the old joke in – well, it's like the old joke. What does a yellow light mean? Slow down. What does a yellow? I'm gonna keep going until oh, I get it. He suffers an aneurysm midway through telling the joke. <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> but at any rate, you know, it's about like you know, we believe that the mother and father are supposed to work out in a certain way because Back to the Future comes from this idea of, of what an ideal family should be like. Yeah. And, once, and, and the ideal family should be preppy and financially successful and their kids shouldn't go to the jail. And, and you know, should be, and the high, school billy should, the high school bully should be waxing their cars in the garage. Right, right, right. So if a time travel venture leads to an outcome that reinforces the things that we're supposed to believe are good, then it makes sense for the storyteller to lean on that style of time travel. Um, if the results, if the, the storyteller has a different attitude about um, causality, uh, about the way that the world should be, if the, t- the storyteller isn't primarily concerned with the way that the world should be or think that the way that things are is guaranteed or good, then they're probably more likely to use something that's a little bit more convoluted, like, say, Primer is a great example, um, which is the most convoluted time travel movie I know of off the top of my head. Oh, really? By the way, it's interesting that you say Primer because I always read it as Primer. Oh, is it Primer? Well, it's a a very different title for the movie, right? You know, like, I wonder wonder what that means about each of us as as human beings. What what would be Primer? One one of you is British? I think it means Jordan is British. Well, a Primer is... is, uh, is like a coat of paint that goes on before another coat of paint, and a primer is an introductory textbook. I, I will say though, primer like, is, is something in electrical the, engineering as well. No, the, the term the term is also used a lot in biology, but uh, it's often and it's used for a little bit of like DNA or RNA that's used to start off the rest of everything else, uh, and we call it a primer. But then in Britain, it's called a primer. Mm. Primer, I just met her. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, Primer is a low budget is Mark. <laughs> Primer is a low budget film where two guys make a time machine and they use various things to sort of go back in time on each other and it's about their relationship. And the ultimate, I think, moral of the story is that 
friends, when given absolute power, like fuck each other over. Um, and because Wait, isn't that of it, also the plot to uh, the butterfly effect, starring um, uh, uh, what's Ashton, his name, um, Sir Ashton, Ashton Kutcher, and and Ashton the guy who plays Earl's brother on My Name Is Earl. <laughs> Did someone say Sir Ashton Kutcher there? In the future, I'm sorry. In the in the 22nd century, he's a he's a knight, um, a knight Templar, actually. Because <laughs> we, we've we've returned to uh, low technology due to a Malthusian crisis, Sir Ashton Kutcher has brought back the Knights Templar. Right. right. That's more. You know, talk about suspension of disbelief. I'd watch that movie, and I think it was real while I was watching. <laughs> you know, has there been a movie made called Suspension of Disbelief? Because that'd be a fantastic like legal thriller. Yeah, it's about it's about it's by Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> Is that? <laughs> Are you serious? No. Oh, I'm okay. not. Actually, I think it should either be about suspenders or a suspension bridge. And it should be a pun. Way, very way, little like, suspension disbelief. About building, building a Brooklyn Bridge. That's what yeah. it's about. <laughs> <laughs> like, damn it, there's no way to do it. It's too, it's impossible. No, the human spirit is indomitable. We will build this bridge. <laughs> just we, have to, disbelief. we have to be able to get to Brooklyn somehow. Suspended. We need to get from Manhattan to Brooklyn. Okay, we are drifting way the hell off topic. Yeah, we should go back to Manhattan. Brooklyn kind of sucks. The um, so Pete, the the uh, what do you make of like the Star Trek model of uh of time travel in like yesterday's Enterprise, where it's like, well, there is a way the world should be, but we actually have choices as to you know whether we're going to shape it or not, and there's not like inevitability. I mean, I think that that's a bit of a raw, less Victorian worldview, and I think it comes largely out of Star Trek's uh, genre ancestry in Westerns, which are, more than anything else, uh, the genre that really explores what happens when you have a goal as to what you think society should be, but you realize that a lot of the things that make society the way that you like it are um, not, you know, divine or automatic, but are in fact like the product of specific people doing specific things. Well, right, and are not necessarily in... uh... You know, uh, I think of Jack Nicholson saying, like, you want me on that line, right? That, you know, yeah, that, exactly. your, that your society rests on a bed of people doing things that would get them kicked out of your society. Right, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, so, that, so there's a certain hypocr- hypocrisy involved in these things. But yeah, I think that uh, the Star Trek, you know, because of the, the nature of its heroes, they're not particularly idealized, except for, I guess, Spock. Um, I mean, he's pretty ideal. He's pretty awesome. He's got the ears. He does the photography, the Jewish devotional nude photography. <laughs> Wait, hold it. You don't, you don't think that the cast of the Enterprise is idealized? Um, I guess that they're idealized within the framework of, of their own values. I guess I wasn't thinking that they were idealized from the standpoint of being model citizens. Um, but you're right. They are cl- I mean, it's not, clearly it's not idealized. Firefly. They're clearly caricature. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, like, you know, the, it's... I always thought of Star Trek as a very sort of upbeat and positive view of the future. It's a future in which, like, you know, most of the human race, like, lives in a state. There's no poverty. There's no hunger. Yeah, it, um, it's, and very, really, it's very like, intentionally, and, and not to mention, like, the, you know, ethnic uh, heterogeneity of the, of the whole show, right? It's, it's sort of designed from the onset to be a very positive view of what happens to humanity. Well, yeah, but, I mean, Captain Kirk still goes around making out with aliens and dropkicking people. Yeah, well, people see that as as a flaw in his character. I think people see that as like, wow, he's everything that like you know a man and a captain should be. Well, I don't think it's it's I don't think it's a flaw, but I think it's un- not ideal. He's not ideal in the sense of upholding the values that he defends with every action that he takes. So there's a certain complexity and tension between the things that he does and the ends that they serve. 
right? I would disagree. I would say that his values. I would say that his values are based on drop kicking and making out. Really, <laughs> that he basically I mean, loves the job, and that's why he does it. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's good. At, he's good at what he does, but what he Can does. Can we get Shatner so on the podcast? Because he needs to resolve these things for us. <laughs> I'm a big fan of your show. I think he's the best actor of his generation. I'm going to be a long podcast of, of any generation. Best actor uh, and singer. I'll point out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Leonard Nimoy is pretty good. He's a song. Oh yeah, his Frodo song is pretty impressive. Yeah, the ballad of Bilbo Baggins is pretty good. Oh, is it, oh, it's Bilbo Baggins. I think it's, it's Bilbo. Bilbo. Frodo. Yeah. You know, no, it's the not Hobbit. He's old school. Not Bilbo Baggins. So I Michael. read somewhere, I read on Wikipedia or IMDb or something this week that uh, they that Zemeckis and Spielberg made it gigawatt because they had been at some scientific conference and heard them pronounce, heard a scientist pronounce the metric prefix G-I-G-A, which we now say is giga, as in gigabyte, uh, as jiga, you know. Yeah, but I, I, would, I would not. I would believe that like you often hear, like, creationist people say like no no there are real scientists who don't believe in evolution and they they spell it i think in the script and in the the materials for the movie they spell it j-i-g-o uh watt like so, watt yeah exactly <laughs> but the um you know but so let's presume for a second that uh the gigawatt <laughs> is an actual metric unit uh, distinct from the gigawatt, and that it uh, one point twenty one point twenty one uh, of uh, these gigawatts of these gigawatts is uh, contained in the energy of a bolt of lightning. Why, Matt? What what a, what a fantastic assumption to make, and by incredible coincidence, I have done some calculations based upon that. No, I was teeing you up. Jiggle. You don't have to make fun yeah, of the fucking segue. You know, oh. sometimes we can do some fucking shit without navel gazing the fuck out of it all the time. Oh. You know, language, jeez, family show. Yeah, if anything, I mean, new listen to our podcast because it's the educated, and that's what, and they love the movies from the eighties. I'm sorry. I'm s- yeah, no, I'm sorry, children. I'd, if I weren't under such heavy sedation, I would be... Matt, Matt I, I'm sorry. Will you accept my apology? <laughs> no, I won't fucking accept your fucking apology. Yes, of course, Will you I accept will. my apology in the form of cash monies? <laughs> uh, so, um, so, Dave, I understand you've done some calculations. <laughs> I, I, you understand correctly, Matthew. <laughs> would, you, would, you like, would you like to hear about them? <laughs> no. I wanted to tee it up. I wanted to tee it up and then move on just to and tantalize just you. Just, just with dangle the, that carrot. With the promise of, of fulfillment and then uh, yank it away from you. Horrifying. I, so. I, I was too I was thinking so, that there, I was Dave, that how there powerful, would be How powerful is the gigawatt? Okay, so uh, again, if we assume that the bolt of light... So the thing is, we don't have any direct way of, of measuring the gigawatt except for uh, what happens at the end of Back to the Future 1. So we know that like a bolt of lightning is roughly one gigawatt. And so if you consult uh, the Wikipedias, you'll find that a, a bolt of lightning, uh, you, you, can, you can get the numbers there for, on average, uh, what would be the voltage that it goes across and uh, how many amperes of current it would carry. And if you take the amperes times the voltage, uh, you get the power, and, and wattage is, is a measurement of power. Yep. So you, you get that, and that, that works out to be uh, about 40 terawatts. So four times ten to the thirteenth watts of power in a bolt of lightning, okay. and that's one that's one point twenty one gigawatts. So you then get that a gigawatt is about three point three zero six 
times 10 to the 13th watts, or about 33 terawatts. So that, that's, that's 33 million million watts. Everybody so with how me? how many gigawatts is a gigawatt? How many what? How many gigawatts oh, is a gigawatt? So a gigawatt is 10 to the 9th, so that would be, uh, be 10,000 uh, gigawatts. 10,000 gigawatts? 10,000. No, it would have to yeah. be like 40,000 gigawatts, right? Oh, yeah, yeah no, you're right. You're right. It's, 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 it's 33.06 thousand gigawatts. Okay, 33. Oh, screw it. <laughs> but, you know, I, all right, all right, I, can, I can put this into more concrete numbers for you. So the full, the full Back to the Future trilogy is 337 minutes long. Uh, and if you were to show that on a 200-watt projector, uh, a single a, a one, one gigawatt would be able to show the full Back to the Future trilogy on 40,875.4 projectors. All right? Now, uh, a 60, you, could, you could run uh, 100, you could run 153 million 60-watt bulbs for one hour. Uh, and those are like those are the last like realistic calculations I made, but I figured like let's do let's do things that are completely stupid. So okay, so <laughs> you guys remember what a what a Jello jiggler is? Okay, so this is where you prepare some Jello in like in like a baking sheet, and then once it's it's uh, solidified, you take like a cookie cutter and you cut it out, uh, and then you have like this fun. Yeah, this one. Okay, so so uh, the recipe I found online says that you can make about twenty-four jigglers from two packets of Jello. Uh, so it turns out that one jigga jiggler, which is three point three oh six times ten to the thirteenth Jello jigglers, that would take uh, twenty-six, uh, twenty-seven point six times. Uh, sorry, two point seven six times ten to the thirteenth, or twenty-seven point six million million packages of Jello. <laughs> Um, that is a lot of horses. Awesome. And, and <laughs> that is many dead horses. And yeah. that would, of course, require uh, 215,000 million gallons of water to make. Um, there that much water? Uh, uh, that much water. And, and for Blinky, I got one just for Blinky. Um, okay. A Jigga Jigglypuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jig- Jigglypuff puts you to sleep, and then while you're asleep, he writes in your face with a marker. You so, because it's bad that you fell asleep. He doesn't understand yeah. that he put you to sleep. And then he gets so he, he takes girl? the other end off his microphone, and it turns out to be like a sharpie marker. So, assuming that a sharpie, this is a number I got off the net, a sharpie can uh, can write on a CD, it can write on about a, a, a thousand CDs before it runs out of ink. And let's assume that like Jigglypuff writes about the same amount on your face that you would write on a CD. Uh, a Jigga Jigglypuff would be able to write on the faces of 3.306 times 10 to the 16th people. Now, there have only been about 1 times 10 to the 11th people that have ever lived on the planet Earth. <laughs> so, if, if, so if you had time-traveling Jigglypuff, he could write on every single man, woman, and child who's ever lived's faces uh, 100,000 times. <laughs> Good thing I don't have such a creature. Now this this is where my suspension of belief just shuts off. <laughs> no and, suspension uh, of dis- no it's suspension of disbelief. <laughs> Your yeah, suspension of right. belief, you know. Dave, that's actually a, a good segue to a question I wanted to ask. What so kind of question? Yeah, no, I can't wait to hear this question. What sort of question could there be such that that is a good segue to it? It's a related question. So obviously, basically what you just said is the time machine uses a tremendous amount of power. Here's Uh, my question. Why does it also have to be going exactly 88 miles an hour? Thank you. I have no freaking clue. (laughs) He's so proud about it, right? It's made in China, and 88 is lucky in China. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think... 
I think it's. I think that that's probably just to justify why the thing uh, is in a car. Like, yeah, I, I think, yes. I, I think the. I think most time machines aren't moving relative to their frame when they travel through time. Like, if you think to like HG no, Wells. It's extremely dangerous to do that because you don't have no proof that the road in front of you is going to be clear where you're traveling. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is Boy, which is going, exploited you know, to hilarious effect uh, in Back to the Future Three yeah. with the, in, the time, Indians. Yeah. Crazy. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> Do you think it's related to how eight was once thought to be some somewhat of a magical, sacred, natural number back when people believed there were eight periods and eight planets and uh, all these other things that there may or may not be eight of, like eight orbitals and stuff like that? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. My so Palinka and I were were having a little argument over email this week about Back to the Future Two versus Three, and my argument was though Back to the Future Two is by far an awesomer movie than Three. I think that the the payoff is not nearly so cool as it is in Three. Right, like the train falling off the cliff is awesome, but like hoverboarding around Biff's uh, Biff's convertible to grab the book is substantially less awesome. Some people really love hoverboarding. I don't quite get it. You know, I think hoverboarding is cool, but some people love hoverboards. You know what I mean? I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I don't have one myself. Not this is something that um, came up in one of the comments this week that I wanted to address, where somebody said that uh, they were sad about Back to the Future because it's now closer to, what is it, 2015, the second one set? Yeah. yeah. Right? It's closer to 2015 than it is to, uh, to the 80s when these things came out, and we still have no hoverboards. And I was thinking about this. Don't have, and, you know, most of the technology that we see in Back to the Future 2, we don't have uh, uh, holographic sharks. Yeah, yeah. So um, what this means is that oh. when... Uh, maybe you, get, maybe like, you don't. How am I supposed to live every week like it's Shark Week <laughs> without a holographic shark? <laughs> no, but like what this means is that well, when you need a real shark. When Biff goes back and gives the sports almanac to his like to his self, the first thing that Biff does is he goes out and he makes a bunch of savvy sports bets and makes himself a millionaire. Second thing he does is make incredibly savvy tech stock investments and create this wonderland of flying skateboards and 3D sharks. And that when that gets all undone, we end up with the you know the crappy world that we have today. Well, he you know Marty and Doc are in 2015 one, version one. When Biff, for the total of Biff's journey back to the 50s to give the almanac and back, and if it were the Star Trek model of time travel, you know, 2015 would change to, you know, 2015 Prime or 2015 version 2 instantly, you know? So at the point that that Marty takes, that Doc takes Marty and the sleeping Jennifer uh, to 2015, that whole almanac thing has not happened yet. Oh, yeah, you're right. Never mind. <laughs> Still, it's kind of clever. Well, what bets do you think Biff made? Now that we're closer to Back to the Future 1, Back to the Future 2 than Back to the Future 1, what bets do you think Biff made that he made all that money on? What were some of the great sports bets and upsets? Like Buster Douglas? Versus Mike Tyson? Like, do you, think- like, you know what? Tyson, Tyson is going to bite his ear off. I don't think anyone saw that. <laughs> no, no, no way. I don't even believe that. <laughs> no, I will bet you $20 million that Mike Tyson will bite off a part of Evander Holyfield's ear. No it's very way. 
I'll Mike Tyson? It. He's such is a that, gentleman. How could he do that? <laughs> is, is that more or less believable than the fact that the Red Sox would win two World Series in like three years or whatever it was? That's, but no, yeah, he but, wouldn't know about that because it only goes through 2000. Oh, that's right. Good <laughs> point. Mm-hmm. Looking at oh, everything is pretty point. solid. <laughs> it chunky. But you know, one thing we do, one thing we do have now that they have in Back to the Future Part Two is nostalgia for the eighties. Mm. And uh, this is nowhere Girls, better mostly. in evidence than it is in the upcoming Gossip Girl spinoff, <laughs> which is going to follow. Uh, oh, my horoscope was right today, Lily Bass. <laughs> Uh, formerly Lily Vanderwoodson, formerly whatever her maiden name was, uh, as a wild child in the 80s. Are you wow. making up? No, no, no. They're actually doing a spinoff uh, of Gossip so They're going to make it like the Girl. American Girl Collection, where it's going to be like Gossip Girl girls in all different time periods? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess there were Gossip Girls on the American frontier. I mean, I guess like Little House on the Prairie is sort of like Gossip Girl, you know... Yeah, because Gossip, Gossip Girl there'd be like there'd be like some sort of a, a broadsheet being published anonymously about the doings on the prairie, right? <laughs> so she goes right. back to like Martin Luther's place and like nails the the, the various <laughs> the shenanigans. Yeah. Yeah, the, sale, like, the sale of plenary indulgences should be forbidden. And also guess who's sleeping with who? Yeah. <laughs> guess who's sleeping with the Pope, probably. XO XO Martin Luther. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you that. think? Do you think he signed his theses that way? <laughs> so, totally. He said like like ML out. Does anyone know actually what the what the what is it ninety eight theses are? The ninety five theses. Ninety five whatever. <laughs> Sorry, you're right. Ninety five theses. Being Catholic, um, I don't you know pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> that cute upstart. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. Uh, well, I mean, just off the top of my head, I would say that the first thesis is probably our Lord Master Jesus Christ when he said, Pro agenitim agite, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. And if I were just sort of reach back into the old memory banks, back in the little trunk full of junk in the back of my brain, I'd say the second just one is, this word cannot be understood to mean sacramental penance, i.e. confessions and satisfaction, which is administered by the priests, etc., etc. Um, no, you can look it off on the internet. There's I'll not bet. a lot of ads on this page. I feel like there should be more because people probably click on it all the damn time wanting to know what the 95 theses are. Yeah, right? Yeah, they, used to, uh, they used to give you a, a doctorate for freaking anything. These are each one sentence long. Yeah. Did you have to call him doctor, 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 doctor? <laughs> So I would I would say doctor 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 yeah, 95, well, yeah, or sort of 95, you know, assertions. Well, no, they're, yeah. they're definitely, they're theses in that it's like the thesis of an article. He just doesn't go on to support or deny his theses. Well, no, but they, they aren't, they aren't separate. They, they progress. They're not independent from one another. Like, the, a lot of them are evidentiary, and then a lot oh, of them so are like... One, so there's one, it's sort of one argument. It's sort yes. of like the 99, it's sort of the 99, 95 propositions. Like the 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. Exactly. I got 99 <laughs> theses, but the Pope ain't it's, one. It's, exactly. it's, it's, it's mo theses, mo problems, really. It's basically a whole bunch of reasons why is the church constantly asking us for money. You know, like, and then these are the reasons theologically why this doesn't make sense. Well, the building fund... 
You know, <laughs> we gotta have we a gotta air conditioner for that church. Members. Yeah, we, we need a we need a picnic. We have to send we have to send the kids on like youth group retreat over the summer. Look, look just fork over the money. Does the church have to choke a bitch? <laughs> we are profane tonight. We are so profane. Ow. We are cursing. I don't like the bad and, words on the podcast. I don't like the bad words on the website. I think sure. you guys are great when you don't use bad language. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Thank you for your courtesy and not responding to that, anyone. <laughs> well, sorry, Mr. Fenzel. Uh, it's all good. Okay, well, uh, we're we're sort of nearing the time when we should wrap up. So, anyone want to say anything about, um, you know, anyone want to say anything about? I don't I know. Have, uh, I have back one to the future. Actually. Oh, go for it. There's another uh, sort of post that almost was and then wasn't. Uh, and Dave and I were going back about this. Oh, yeah. You know that, that scene in Back to the Future 1 where uh, he goes into Doc's house and plays the guitar and gets thrown across the room? Oh, this is shotgun. a good way to end. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I remember that. So the question came up as we were emailing about Back to the Future Week in general. Like, how loud is that, really? And we tried to do the math, and we got some figures, and they didn't really make sense, because what, what Dave came up with was something that turns out to be about as loud as, uh, as like, a rifle being fired a meter from your head, which, you know, that's loud. You shouldn't do it without ear protection. Doesn't send you spinning across the shooting range. Right. right. And, uh, and then, we, you know, we were, we were going back and forth and doing all the math and trying to figure out, well, you know... Is it one second of guitar sound, or is it the first sound wave that hits him, so like one one hundred and tenth of that second or something like that? And eventually I found a list. And we didn't make a post out of it, because it would just be a link to this list, but I think you'll be interested to know... That's what our Twitter feed is for, though, by yeah, the way. A, a fantastic find, Jordan Bowie. You're, you're yeah. an absolute champion. And if, if, if we do the... Um, you, you know, know we'll, the Twitter, we'll Twitter it. Yeah, the overthinking it recommends. We recommend this list. It's hilarious. Um, if you if you were to play a sound that was 202 decibels loud, that would cause human death from sound alone. All right, just from the shockwave of the sound. Death from shrapnel is uh, quite common for any level above 165 decibels, and being thrown across the room at about 10 feet, 10 feet per second, which is in fact what we calculated his speed to be, is uh, above 180 decibels. So however loud it was, it's well over the level at which death from shrapnel is, quote, likely. Wait, what do you mean, death from shrapnel? <laughs> like, like your own bone shatter and fly to your organs? Is that what oh, you're no, talking no, about? No, no, just you know, that, I mean... People know that joke where the punchline is, death by Pongo Pongo. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's, it's that, but replace uh, humping with shrapnel. <laughs> it, it's where does that, the shrapnel uh, come from? It comes from the speaker. The, the huge chunk of the speaker gets yeah, blown it, off. It just things get atomized. It, it just it's just blowing crap apart in its way. I mean, even if you look at that scene on YouTube, a bunch of papers and books and stuff falls on him. So you know he, he's lucky to be alive. Like if yeah, there were a mailbox my, my, uh, speaker and him, the mailbox would shatter into a bunch of that pieces. That would have been a short movie. Yeah. <laughs> this is like, like, like the most embarrassing unintentional suicide of all time. It's like it's the first Darwin Awards movie. It's, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of like an it's it's like a negligent suicide. It's not a you know. So, I mean, you know, the, the existence of that speaker sort of like implies a lot about the relationship between Marty and Doc. Like, presumably, that's not part of Doc's research. Doc has built that speaker as a gift for Marty. 
Right. Well, I mean, unless he's trying to figure out, you know, how intense the sound has to be to cause instantaneous death. <laughs> yeah. See, I, always, I always thought the opposite, that the reason why Marty is friends with Doc is that Doc was building this speaker, which, of course, Marty heard, uh, because at that, you know, at that level, it's you, you can hear it like 3,000 miles away. Uh, <laughs> the the Krakatoa explosion, yeah. people can look that up. Uh, you know, that was, that was heard in Australia. Um, and that's... Well, it's a little bit higher. It's not uh, I thought that Krakatoa, much Didn't Krakatoa circle the Earth several times? Didn't you like hear it go off, and then you heard echoes of it that had like gone around the globe? I'm totally, I'm totally like this, this is sound taught to me in, in physics class, but maybe anyway. if you were no, a dolphin, maybe it's if you were actually, like on water. It's not, it's not my sound. I'm a dolphin. It's not the sound, but the shockwave did circle the Earth about three oh, times. Yeah, you yeah. like you felt uh, a gust of wind. Like and that's ga- that's got to be powerful. I remember when the last time the shuttle uh, landed, the last time the shuttle landed, I think they were diverted and they flew past LA, and we heard the sonic boom in LA, and the whole damn house shook, like really shook, like it was an earthquake. Uh, sonic boom. <laughs> yes, this was this was one of our calculations, by the way, is that uh, you know a sonic boom uh, can throw somebody across the room. CF Street Fighter Two. <laughs> okay well this has been back to the future week i you know i don't like to toot our own horn and so i'm not tooting my own horn uh because i didn't write an article this week except for the two podcasts uh but i i think it's just i want to say it was like fine fine work on the site from everyone for whatever reason uh doc and marty and whatever brought out the best in in all of you guys, and Aww, so you know, yeah, no, I, I, thought really, it, I really enjoyed reading everything. I did, but I did as well, and yeah, we hope that you listening crazy. to the podcast. We hope that you you did as well. It's good that we don't toot our own horn, though, because the DeLorean's horn was too soft to be useful in traffic. <laughs> <laughs> and we will we will have to leave it there. If you like or dislike anything you heard, give us a call at twenty eat log zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Don't email us because email is still down. But always uh, go to the website at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Start like all saying that line together at the end of the screen. A level of scrutiny, and everyone goes, it probably, it probably does. doesn't. It doesn't. Put on a laugh track as well. Would you do a sitcom podcast where we put in a laugh track? Yeah, that would be incredible. Oh, yeah. We should do that in a couple of weeks. That would be beautiful. Can we, can we, can we please close it with the good times theme? <laughs> oh, no, sorry. Yeah. Not, not good times. With, with what's happening. Yeah. Or just me singing. You humming to the Finally, you said. For my money, that's like the greatest closing theme song of all time.